New Zealand's parliament yesterday voted to redefine marriage as a union between two people, becoming the first country in the Asia-Pacific region to do so. Malcolm Turnbull, why can't we do this here? Well, we can. We certainly can. And I'd be very much in favour of us doing so. But as you know, the parliament uh, considered the matter last year and uh, voted against it. So, But it's, it's open to coming back again. There, there is certainly... Uh, much more rapid change in this area than many of us, including myself, had anticipated. In addition to New Zealand legislating, the United Kingdom uh, is in the process of doing so. France has done so. Um, the, there are now, I believe, 10 United States in the United States that uh, where gay marriage is legal. And so it is a, the, the, the trend is only going one way. How soon do you think that that trend will become a reality here? I think the changes in New Zealand and uh, the United Kingdom are going to have a very big impact. Uh, if you go back to the 1850s when there was an, a case in England called Hyde and Hyde in which a judge gave what became the classic definition of marriage for a long time, which is a permanent union between a man and a woman. Uh, he did so on the basis that this was what was accepted in what he described as all of Christendom. Now, we wouldn't use the term all of Christendom anymore, I guess. But if you if you were sitting in a court in London or anywhere else today and you had to ask yourself, what is the accepted definition of marriage in the Western world or in countries of a dominant Christian tradition, uh, however you wanted to define it, you certainly couldn't say it is a permanent union between a man and a woman because there are so many of those countries, very substantial and important countries, uh, which recognise gay marriage. So there has been a big change. And you know, if you think about, if you think about the, uh, the English-speaking countries, the big English-speaking countries, as I said, about 10 American states uh, recognised gay marriage. Two of them actually voted for it in referendums at the last president during the last election season in America. Uh, Canada recognises gay marriage. New Zealand now does. And the United Kingdom, as I said, is in the process of doing so. So you think sooner rather than later? I, I think this, I, I would have said this was going to take a long time, but I think it will, I think it is, uh, it is going to, it will happen sooner rather than later. Yes, I think the, the, it will become increasingly difficult for Australia to uh, maintain opposition to uh, arrangements which are accepted in countries with which we are so close, mm. which we have so many people going to and fro, so many people coming here from New Zealand. So I mean, contrary aligned to ourselves. Well, yeah. I, look, I think the I think there is there has been a big sea change in this, and and you know it's happened. This has happened incredibly rapidly in the space of a few years. When I mentioned on Twitter yesterday that you were coming in and I, I said to the people on Twitter, what would you like to ask Malcolm Turnbull? There were two great questions there. One of them, of course, is the National Broadband Network. Right. Do you believe, do you believe that the Coalition's alternative plan is the best option for Australia? It is. I have, I have absolutely no doubt about it. And if uh, well, I wasn't a politician, if I was back in my old job, uh, in the business world and the, the government, any government had asked me to advise on what the best course of action would be, I would describe exactly what our policy is because you get the right balance between the level of investment, uh, affordability, in other words, 
uh, have, being able to price the internet access at a price that people can afford, and also speed and and giving people the the services that they need. So I think we've got I think we've got the balance right. The problem with Labor's scheme, I mean, let, let's be quite frank about this. You know, Labor has said they're going to run fibre optic cables into ninety three percent of Australian households. Uh, we criticised it as being too expensive. We actually think this project will cost $94 billion. And yet on Monday, didn't you say in an interview that you could fully expect the Coalition's plan to ultimately cost the same? No, no, I didn't say that at all. Now, what, 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 no, that was, a, that was a, different, a different question. Let me just, let me just uh, get back to the point about Labor's plan. So a $94 billion investment taking a, a very long time. Uh, it's running way behind schedule. You know, they've after four years, they've got less than twenty thousand people connected to the fibre, and they'll be lucky by June thirty to meet fifteen percent of their targets. Although so, overall, they're running, I think, three months behind over the ten-year projection. Uh, They—that's not too bad. That is spin. That is spin. With great respect, it's not, they're not running three months behind. In two thousand and three, Telstra executives said to a Senate inquiry that the copper network had to be replaced within fifteen years. That it was five minutes to midnight for that copper network. Should we be relying on that at all for such a massive piece of infrastructure? Well, you've got to remember that under our scheme, we are replacing almost all of the copper. Uh, the, the only copper that would remain in the customer access network is the last four or 500 metres but, uh, to the premise. And the reason for not replacing that is that as long as it is in good condition as long as the length is short, you can deliver very high-speed broadband, I'd say up to 100 megs, and uh, so you can deliver very high-speed broadband, certainly more than fast enough for what people want and are prepared to pay for and value, but you save a gigantic amount. I mean, the depressing thing about the cost of these networks is that it's really the last, you know, they say the last mile, it's actually less than a mile, it's that last mile that costs all the money because it's so labour-intensive. Well, that last mile at the moment near my place fills up with water on a regular basis and knocks out all of my telephony services. Well, that you, you, yours, if that's the case, uh, you, you, your, your area would be a candidate for having that either having that copper remediated uh, at the time of the build, and we've taken account of that in our policy, or if you've got areas that are that have got endemic problems in terms of maintenance and water penetration, then you may replace them with fibre uh, and do so uh, now. So it's a, you just have to be pragmatic and practical about it. But the changes are literally, it's talking about cha- uh, saving $60 billion. And yet, over the long term, is that going to be a false economy if we're having to make very large investments in the very near future to upgrade well, I don't the alternative you, NBN? No, I don't believe you'll. I don't believe you'll need uh, upgrades in the very near future. But if the uh, if the alternative plan is offering twenty five megabits per second, that's a minimum. That is a minimum. Most people. Will, let me just be clear about that. Most people will get by twenty sixteen on the fixed line upgraded network 50 megabits per second or better we've said 25 is the minimum that is what will that's what will the direction will give nbn co as the minimum so they've got to do it on the basis that nobody gets less than that our goal is and our direction to nbn co will be by 2016 uh, sorry 2019 3 years later to ensure that at least 90% of the people in that network have not less than 50 megabits per second. There so are other countries, though, Mr Turnbull, that are already offering significantly faster than 25 megabits per second. Singapore is offering around 50. 
um, Japan has a rollout now of a one gigabyte fibre mm. system. Which completely useless, by the way, for a residential consumer. There's no, it's, a, it's a marketing gimmick. But should we be building but the, no, two but, networks, but, one for industry and research and, and one for domestic users or just investing in one big system no, that'll no, be well, well, the a answer, solid piece of infrastructure for decades to come? The answer is, do you answer your question? If, you, if your question is, should you be providing uh, higher rates of bandwidth to industry and research and businesses than you do to residential consumers, the answer is obviously yes, because they've, that you know, they, they've got a market for it. If you if you can you can spend uh, a gigantic amount of money, ninety four billion dollars, and connect every every cottage, every flat, every townhouse in Australia to a fibre optic cable that's capable of running at a hundred megs or ultimately at a gigabyte, uh, but the vast majority of those customers have no use for and no value for and will not pay you for those very high-speed services. So you're making a gigantic investment upon which you can get no return. And as a consequence, you end up having to charge people a lot more. You've got to remember under Labor's plan, this is not my figure, this is their, this is what they have said in their own documents, their own papers they've given to the ACCC and their own corporate plan, Wholesale prices will treble over the next 10 years for broadband access. Now, they've been coming down for the last 10 years. And there's no wonder they'll go up because if you're investing so much money in the network, you've got to get a, re- a, a return on it. Certainly, so, but there uh, are plenty of other scheme, commentators who are saying that technology will get cheaper, that the costs will get cheaper, well, delivery will no, get there, cheaper. There aren't. With great respect, there, there are. There aren't. I mean, the, the, the NBN Co, this is the NBN Co's own figures. It's not controversial. I, a lot of people think they're, they're actually uh, uh, underestimating the cost increases that they would need. And you've got to remember it's being set up as a monopoly. I mean, I, I think you've got to, I think a very important thing to bear in mind is that we have to be practical and hard-headed about this. You know, this is serious money, serious, you know, we're talking about all the other infrastructure investments we need to make in Australia. This is very serious money. Now, the great virtue of telecoms networks is unlike a bridge, you can expand them incrementally, bit by bit. Uh, Isn't you, it going to just delay the cost, and the cost will increase as we delay the projects? But that, but, but well, let, let, let's take an. Let's we see ta- that with just about every okay, major no, but, infrastructure no, project in the country. Let's assume that we can spend um, nine hundred dollars on average to get a premise up to, for the most part, fifty megs, but no one less than twenty-five, and we can do that now. And let's assume it's going to take us the best part of another three thousand dollars to get them up to 100 megs and up to a gigabyte with fibre to the premise. But let's assume there's not going to be any demand in those residential areas for that very high speed for, say, 10 years. All right? I'm saying you would be better off postponing that investment, keeping that extra $3,000 in your pocket, uh, earning a return on it somewhere else or not having to borrow it, and then when the demand is there making the investment then. And this is the great thing about a Isn't tele- it just going to cost more then? No, well, why would it? It's just it's just labor costs. I mean, labor costs will rise with the price of inflation, but so will everything else. But the the the, the big difference is if you build a bridge, you you cannot uh, build a bridge with demand just 10 years ahead because it's you can't just keep adding lanes every 10 years. You know, you've got to think ahead you know, 30, 40, 50 years. With a telecoms network, you've got the ability 
to build it for now and the foreseeable future, and you've got the ability to upgrade it progressively over time as demands change, and you don't really know what the demand's going to be, and above all, as technologies develop. And so while postponing investment until it's needed, you know, may seem being a bit hard-headed and sounding too much like a canny accountant than a visionary politician, <laughs> uh, the, it, it actually ha- makes great sense because if you postpone that investment until it's needed, not only do you, you know, save the, 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 the opportunity cost on the money that you uh, have not invested that would have earned no return during that time, so you've got the, your investment in your pocket, earning interest, doing something else, but also when you do come to invest, you're using the latest technology. And that's a, that, is a, you know, that's the, that is a powerful argument to take a more steady and business-like approach to it. So, oh. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, look, all politicians are uh, susceptible to grand gestures, but this is a case where you can, you can actually uh, be hard-headed, pragmatic, make it the network affordable both for the taxpayer and the consumer and nonetheless have the advantage of the best technology when you need it. Malcolm Turnbull is my guest here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle. A couple of quick questions from listeners or perceptions that I have gathered from them yesterday on Twitter. Um, Why do you think that so many people hold the opinion that you don't actually believe in the broadband policy that you're having to sell? I've got no idea. I, 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 I... I think they're transferring their own views to me. But you think I, so? Because it is a regular comment. And, and you would see it on – I see your Twitter feed often and the debates mm, that you have. Well, and there I are don't, plenty of I, people who say, Malcolm, you don't believe that. No, well, I, I, I can assure you that I do and because I'm, I'm – look, I've been involved in the internet in Australia since it really got going. I know. I was one I was of the co-founders of Aussiemail. So I, I, and I am a, a notorious uh, – um, well, you know, I'm, digi- I'm digitally connected. I, I'm online a lot. And I'm not, you know, we I'm know. Not, you're a fanboy. You I'm get not it. a luddite. Okay, and but I'm just saying to you, you can achieve everything you want to do. Get everybody online quickly and affordably. I mean, remember this: people in the bottom twenty percent of incomes are nine times less likely to be online than people in the top 20%. But they should be. So why should they have to pay $5,000 for a high-speed no, no, broadband service? Because you don't need a fibre-optic cable. This is, this is the, the great fallacy that you're labouring under, is the notion that to have access to the digital economy, you need to have a fibre-optic cable into your house. It doesn't matter what the technology is, as long as you have the speed that enables you to do all the things you want to do. Now, you know, you talk about 25 megs, and I say that is a minimum, but let's look at 25 megs. With 25 megabits per second, you can stream, download simultaneously four high-definition video streams. That is a lot. You can do all of your e-commerce, all of your teleconferences. Television released this work that is higher definition and is going to take a greater amount of bandwidth than that. Well, look, the, the, the real issue is, are people prepared to pay for it, are they prepared to pay for that investment? And the the answer is that you will not get, you will never get a return, at least I don't believe, not for a very, I cannot foresee a time when you can get a return on those from residential consumers for those very, very high speeds. Now, now, if I'm wrong, the good thing is, it doesn't matter whether I'm right or wrong, because the flexibility is in the network. We will build it so that it is capable of being upgraded to fibre to the premise as and when demand requires it. So, in other words, you keep all your options open. 
More questions. Sure. From More Twitter. Right. Why do you think there is a perception that women don't like Tony Abbott very much? That women I, are uncomfortable with Mr. Well, Abbott. I'm not sure that's right. You know, I, I think that's something that is asserted. I know one woman that doesn't like him very much, but um, that's his opponent, the Prime Minister. But I think the, you know, you, you look at Tony. I mean, there he is. He's, you know, he's got two lovely daughters and, you know, he's got his wife and, you know, he works with plenty of women in his office. I and mean, that's the, lovely, but that's got nothing to do with policy. Well, I don't, or... I really don't, the, the, the proposition that Tony Abbott is a misogynist, I think is just wrong. Now, you know, you can make a lot of other points about him, but the idea that he is a woman hater is just nonsense. One of the other comments that I actually see a lot of on social media is this one. I wouldn't vote for the Liberal Party, for the coalition under Tony Abbott, but I would vote for it under Malcolm Turnbull? Well, that's very flattering and I am always accept a compliment. You don't get a lot in politics. And all I can say is that I am part of the coalition collective leadership team. We're not electing a president. You know, Tony Abbott is the leader. He'll be prime minister if we win. For better not... or for worse, Australians do vote on personality. Well, yes. Personality and a $3 tax cut. But there is more than one personality in a government, and there's more than one personality in an opposition too, for that matter. And so we are a team. And so you might prefer Malcolm Turnbull to Tony Abbott, or you might prefer Tony Abbott to Joe Hockey or Julie Bishop to all of us. But the fact is, we're all part of that group. And so it's a package deal. And so all I can say is the people who say, I'd rather, you know, I, I think Malcolm should be the leader rather than Tony, I can say, I, I thank you very much for that generous sentiment. But I'd still urge you to vote Liberal because I will be there. I am part of the leadership team and it is a collective leadership so team. So for it's those people who system. aren't comfortable with Tony, you'll be able to rein him in and make him behave in the ways well, that perhaps that they wish? Well, I'm not sure what they want me to rein him in on. I mean, they say people, when you ask people about that, they start, keep on talking about his uh, swimming attire. I don't know that I, that's my responsibility. I think a lot of people are concerned as well that perhaps his obviously strong faith may interfere in his policy-making decisions. Well, you know, I think he's. Uh, I, I, I don't think there's any. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence for that. He's. He's a very practical person. He recognises that the Liberal Party and indeed Australia is a very broad, diverse community. You know, we use the expression a broad church only to not to suggest that we're all religious, but you know that there's a wide range of views. And as the leader, you've got to accommodate. All of those views, and I sought to do that when I was leader. There's lots too. of points, though, that you two differ on. How hard is that? Well, we differ. I mean, we differ famously on the question of the republic, but that is a, in effect, a, a free vote issue in the Liberal Party. So there are plenty of liberals that think we should be a republic. Peter Costello comes to mind, obviously. Uh, plenty that don't. John Howard and Tony Abbott, uh, uh, you know, staunch monarchists. So the Liberal Party survives, notwithstanding differences of opinion. You know, we we have a common purpose uh, in restoring capable, competent uh, government that uh, that seeks to enable people to do their best rather than telling them what is best. So we've got a philosophy of government, but we don't agree on every issue. Malcolm Turnbull, before I let you go, this morning I had to pay $7 for this pomegranate. You, you, that, that is that outrageous. Was, that, that's a, quite a small pomegranate that too. That is a for those miserable, that, miserable pomegranate is, for $7. Can you please outline for the listeners your pomegranate policy? Okay, my pomegranate policy is this. Uh, if you 
want to avoid having to uh, get the fruit out of pomegranates in your swimming costume, what you should do, if you don't want to get covered in red juice, what you should do is score the pomegranate into four quarters, get a basin of water, break it up under the water, and then uh, get the fruit out under the water. And because it's under the water, you won't get splashed with any red pomegranate juice. And the fruit falls to the bottom and all the pulpy stuff floats to the top, which you then scoop off and then drain it in a colander. And that is the that is the pomegranate policy. I know that you have a lunch to go to, and if you weren't wearing a white shirt, I'd have you demonstrate oh, I, that I, I'd for be, us. I'd love to do it. I would love to do it. I'll come back and do it with, uh, a, with a white shirt. There's a promise? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Malcolm Turnbull, thank you for your time. Okay, bye.